I hope the topic today is going to be of a timely nature. I believe it might be, since we are right in the heart of the Christmas season. I've decided that it might be worthwhile for us as a congregation to reflect on Christmas and what we can derive from Scripture and from our understanding of history regarding this season. I've entitled the lesson, What's Wrong with Christmas? And in my view, from my standpoint, I believe there's a lot wrong with Christmas, and I think that as serious-minded Christians, this is something that we need to reflect on and visit from time to time. Some of the information that I'll be able to present to you this morning may not be new to some of you. On the other hand, though, there are probably some here this morning in which this topic has not really been explored very thoroughly, and there are certainly quite a few young people here this morning which this has only been touched on in a cursory manner. So our discussion this morning is going to be dealing with the season of Christmas and the various uh, pretty profound and serious problems that need to be considered. Now our introduction, as a holiday, it has, Christmas has many problematic characteristics, multiple. And Christmas stands unique among holidays in our culture and in our society as one that I believe serious Christians ought to avoid. Now, there are probably several holidays that Christians ought to avoid. For example, we could spend a few minutes talking about Halloween. But Halloween is... All the, the, the problems with Halloween are so obvious that any sober-minded Christian should be able to step aside from that quickly and easily. But Halloween is different in, in one important respect, and I'll touch on this a little bit later. But Christmas is not a single day that comes and goes. Christmas is, in our time, an overwhelming season that lasts Weeks, multiple weeks, and it has a tug and a pull that draws you in to an ungodly culture. And that ungodly culture leaves a pretty big imprint every single year for multiple weeks. Now, as I see it, life is filled with various, what you might call, slippery slopes. Not all slopes are equally slippery. And this is a very slippery one. This one has a strong pull. It has a dr dramatic tug upon us in our culture, in our society. And it can really be the beginning of a cascade of decisions in life that draw you away from your faith, draw you away from biblical authority, and draw you into a different world that is dictated by the larger culture rather than Scripture and our understanding of Scripture. So let's begin with some of the problems that we need to look at here. First of all, we'll talk about the date of Jesus' birth. Now, the birth date of Jesus is in the autumn. The scholarship on this that has been, and the research that's been done in the, in the last several decades is, is pretty pretty clear. Now, there are those who are going to try to make a defense of the idea that Jesus was born in December. Uh, it's an exceptionally weak case. 
There are a few who will say, well, actually Jesus was born in the, in the spring season. It's not a particularly strong case. Uh, it is, it is pretty, pretty, pretty clear, rather clear in my view, that Jesus was born in the autumn. Now, let's just get a few biblical thoughts here out. Let's open our, your Bible, if you would, please, to the Gospel of Luke. And the Gospel of Luke offers a number of very specific uh, pieces of information regarding the birth of Jesus that we need to consider. So, as you know, the story in the Gospel of Luke and the birth of Jesus actually begins the story regarding the birth of John the Baptist. So we can use the conception of John the Baptist to determine the birth of Jesus. So the conception of John the Baptist is going to begin with uh, verse number 5. It tells us in verse 5 of the Gospel of St. Luke, and you might mark this in, in, in your mind and in your Bible. There was in the days of Herod a king of Judea, a certain priest named Zacharias, of the course of Abiah. And his wife was of the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Now this chapter goes on to describe the birth, the conception, the birth, the plan, the entire story behind this important character, John the Baptist. And if we read on down, we might pause and just note verse 8. It says, And it came to pass that while he, that's Zacharias, he executed the priest's office before God in the order of his course. According to the custom of the priest's office, his lot was to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. Now, what is that talking about? Well, all of this is talking about, it turns out that in the, the, the administration of the entire temple complex, you have a high priest that presides over everything, all the functions. He has, assisting him though, priests that come from around the country of Judea and Galilee. And this, is, this was a pattern that was established in the Old Testament and had been carried forward, reinstituted in the days of Ezra and Nehemiah, and was even in the days of the New Testament, this was the pattern in which things functioned. And there, it turns out, there were 24 courses, and each course functioned about two weeks. Now, if you would care to open up to 1 Chronicles, it mentions this there in chapter 24, verse 10, and it mentions the course of Abiah. So the long and short of it is this. Because the, the courses begin in the beginning of the, sea, in the year, in the spring, in the, in the ecclesiastical calendar, we have a pretty good idea when the course of Abiah was. Turns out the course of Abiah was the eighth out of 24. And it turns out that this event almost surely occurred in what we would say late May or early June. And thus we find this. <laughs> the course of Abiah places the conception of John the Baptist in late June. Now I'm using the months that we are familiar with and the seasons that we're familiar with rather than with stumbling around with the various sundry Hebrew months. But in what we would call late June is when John the Baptist was almost certainly conceived. We know now, also from this chapter, if we keep reading in Luke chapter 1, if we drop down to verse 26, and then again in verse number 36, let me read for you verse 36 of Luke chapter 1. It says, Behold thy cousin Elizabeth, she hath conceived a son in her old age, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. So it turns out that the conception of Jesus was six months 
after John's. And we've derived this from this entire story about Mary visiting Elizabeth, discovering that her cousin Elizabeth was in the sixth month of pregnancy. That would mean that would mean that this now was approximately the month we would call December. So we, I can, we can arrive at the conclusion that Jesus was thus conceived in late December. Jesus was conceived in late December and he was born in late September. Jesus was an autumn baby. Jesus was born likely in the late, what on our calendar would fall late September, perhaps early October. That would have been the season. Now, this is the, there's more to all of this in terms of studying out the calendar. There's more details. I've kind of gone through a little bit quickly here. We can build a pretty powerful case and a pretty reliable case that, uh, that this, is the, this is correct. This is when Jesus was born in terms of dealing with the clues we can derive from Scripture and studying the calendar and picking up all these details. Now, there are other points that we can r raise, though, that are going to just point us to the idea that Jesus had to be born almost surely in the autumn. Secondly, we discover from Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, that there was an empire-wide tax, an empire-wide census that the Romans called at this time in history. Now, it's almost certain that the Romans would not ask for this empire-wide census and tax to be in the winter. And you say, well, why would that be? Why wouldn't they do it in the winter? Well, it's because the census required everyone to travel. The census had then enrolled everyone in their hometown. And the purpose of the enrollment was to be able to find the men and the heads of households so that they could pay the poll tax. A poll tax was a tax upon the adult men empire-wide. Now, if you remember your geography about the Roman Empire... The Roman Empire encompassed a lot of different regions of the Mediterranean world. And spring or fall would be highly desirable. Summer would be tolerable. The winter would be a very poor choice because it was very difficult to travel in many parts of the Roman Empire in the winter season. A bit difficult in the land of Judea. Nigh into impossible in many of the European regions of the Roman Empire. You'll notice in Luke chapter 2, the entire world, that means the entire Roman Empire, was being enrolled for this tax. Next we have a tidbit in Luke chapter 2, verse number 8. And we discover and recall from our stories about the birth of Jesus, that there were shepherds abiding in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night, when this occurred in that country. Well, that country was the land of Judea. And we'll discover now that it is extremely unlikely that the shepherds would have their flocks in the fields in late December in the hill country of Judea. And you say, well, why would that be? Well, because the hill country of Judea was rather high in elevation. The city of Bethlehem and Jerusalem, not far from each other, lie at well over 3,000 feet of elevation. And what that means is that the wintertime was somewhat wintry. The grass had stopped growing. The nights were very cold. It was not uncommon or unknown for there to be snow 
And every once in a while, the, you actually have even heavy snows in the land of Judea around Bethlehem and Jerusalem. So it, it's unlikely that the, 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 the flocks and the shepherds were out in the fields, camping out under the starry sky in the winter of descent, late December. It is highly plausible that they would have been there in the fall, however. In the autumn season, that is highly plausible. Continuing, also we find the story in the gospel. We discover, we'll discover that the gospel stories tell us that the inn was full in Bethlehem. The inn was full. You remember your stories. Of course, that is, um, there is no room for them in the inn in Luke chapter 2 and verse 7. Well, why would that be? Well, it was unlikely that that would be the case in December, but it was highly plausible that that would be the case at tabernacles in the autumn season. At tabernacles, you would have had a large number of people traveling, Bethlehem being essentially a well, again, not far from Jerusalem. Bethlehem was not quite, but almost a suburb of Jerusalem, well within walking distance. And the entire environs and the whole metropolitan area of Jerusalem was jammed with people at the festival seasons. And it would have spilled out into all the surrounding communities, including likely to be Bethlehem. And finally, we find that it's really a bit unlikely that a poor nine-month pregnant woman would have been able to make an 80-mile journey in winter to register her husband in the Roman tax records, but it was highly likely that she would make such a journey and make such an attempt at tabernacles because it was the custom to do that. It was the custom for entire families to travel to the festival at tabernacle season. And so that it was, is, this is very plausible that this could have occurred in the fall season rather than in the winter season, bearing in mind that Mary and Joseph didn't travel in any type of luxury and so such a journey for a, a pregnant lady would have been very, very difficult at best, particularly in the winter season. But she did go. We know the story that she did go. But to be fighting the winter weather was, is really unlikely. All of these point to this. And there's much more that could be said here. This could be a very detailed study, very intricate. And we could really burrow into a lot of details that I haven't mentioned. But the long and short of it is this, the birth date of Jesus, we can say with a lot of confidence, is in the autumn season, it is most likely connected strongly with the Festival of Tabernacles. There is a great deal of uh, theological uh, background that we can add that suggests that the coming of Jesus' birth would be associated with the Festival of Tabernacles, that is, God becoming flesh and tabernacling among his people. So that idea can be explored as well. But our first main point and this is an important point, and one that should not be lost, is that the birth of Jesus was almost certainly, completely, with great confidence, we can say, the birth of Jesus was in autumn and associated with the Festival of Tabernacles, most likely. Now, secondly, we need to go to a point of history. We need to consider this. If that is so, how did the celebration of the birth of Jesus get transferred to December 25? Well, that's another interesting story. And there's a parallel to the answer to this question, because it did get transferred to December 25, as you know. It turns out that the story about how 
the birth of Jesus was, tra- was transferred to a different part of the year, December 25, is the same mechanism and the same a response to the same pressures that caused the early church in the first several centuries. Most of this occurred now in, in the third and fourth century A.D. Third and fourth century. That is the late 300s and the early 400s. That is the 75, 80, 90 year transition zone when all of this occurred. All of what occurred? It was the transfer of the early church in which they lost Passover and they moved to Easter. It's the transference of the early church when they lost the weekly Sabbath day on the seventh day of the week and moved to Sunday. And as well, we lost the birth of Jesus being celebrated in the autumn of the year associated with the tabernacle season and it was transferred to December 25. All of these things occurred at the same time and for the same reasons. Well, what was going on at that time? What was happening in the 3rd, 4th, 5th century A.D., after the birth of Jesus, in the late Roman Empire, what was going on that would cause all these things to occur? occur? Why did the church respond in this way when they hadn't responded that way in the first several centuries? Why did the faithful primitive church keep things right and then later on, As we move into the late Roman Empire, we move into what some people might call the early medieval church. And we begin to see the first risings of what we might call the Roman church, which eventually morphed into the Roman Catholic church, as we think of it. Why did all that occur? Well, what were the forces that were unfolding? Well, here they are. First quick mention. The first mention of Jesus' birth celebration in December was A.D. 215. That was the first mention of anyone ever celebrating his birth in December. The next one wasn't until 354. Now that first one, I believe, was Hippolytus. Now, when he mentioned it, he didn't say that that's the right date. He didn't say that's when I celebrate it. He just mentioned that there are a few people that are starting to do this. That was in the year 215. And the next mention wasn't for another... 130, 140 years, 354. But by the time we move into the late 300s and the early 400s, the transition was well underway based on the pressures I'm going to describe for you. Are you ready? Here's probably the, the, the main thought that you want to derive out of this portion of our discussion. It turns out that the 4th and 5th centuries witnessed extensive social and political pressure to coordinate all Christian celebrations in the Roman Empire with pagan celebrations. Okay, you get the idea here. There was pressure to coordinate Christian celebrations with pagan celebrations. Now to understand why that would happen and why people might want that motive, let me give you a little background, just a little bit here. Let's start off with this. You and I live in American society And in the Western world of Western Europe, in our tradition, in our minds, there is a reasonably strong division between religion and politics. We have the, as we phrase it in the United States of America, we have the separation of church and state. All of us have been living with that now for several hundred years. So in the modern American mind, 
And in the mind of people from Western Europe, there is a pretty strong division between political affairs and religious affairs. You do what you want religiously. Your faith is separate and distinct from all political matters. That is not the concept of the ancient world. That is not how almost any of the ancient world's societies functioned. Politics and religion were as intertwined as your shoelaces are when you lace up one of your shoes. You could not separate politics and religion. They were combined. One always immediately impacted the other. Now you and I know that there is some overlap between religious concepts and political concepts. And when we in our country attempt to divide politics and religion, we can only kind of sort of do that. But we try pretty hard to do that. But we know that it kind of overlaps and spills over a bit. But there was no attempt in the ancient world to do so. And that is the way his, most of world history has, has unfolded. Most of even modern history has unfolded that until really we get to the, the late phase of the Protestant Reformation, the 1600s, 1700s, that you begin to see what we have today. But in the Roman era, the idea that religious affairs and political affairs would not be intimately connected was kind of a strange thought. It was, it was a really a bizarre thought. It's, it's really something that the ancient world just didn't function in that way. And there's a, a lot more I could say about this. But you need to get that thought in your head. Politics and religion were locked, geared together. When one made a decision and a move, the other went with it. And so you'll find that in ancient times, when a there are quite a few examples of some ancient great conqueror would sweep in and take over a country. He would just impose a new religion or he would attempt to do so. And that was as natural as him imposing a new tax on his newly conquered subjects or trying to impose a new set of laws. He would just impose a new religion and he expected everybody to just roll over, which sometimes they did and sometimes they didn't. But nonetheless, that was just the way things were. Now, that thought being in mind, here's what we've got going on. The Roman Empire had this tension, a great deal of tension in the late Roman Empire between the new religion of Christianity that was becoming very, very popular and had recently been legalized and made lawful primarily by Constantine the Great and other popular religious streams in the Roman Empire. And it was a political decision by Roman leaders to attempt to bring some of these religious holidays together. To bring the religious calendars together. To try to make some, to patch together some sort of a religious settlement, so to speak. So that there would be more political unity and social cohesion. Thus... We have the, the attempt to coordinate Christian holidays with the pagan holidays on the same calendar system. And here's some of the thinking that was going into this. You'll note this. Turns out that the Roman feast of Saturnalia, some of you perhaps have never heard of it, but it was a popular Roman holiday that the Romans had been celebrating for centuries. It was a holiday that, a, that was associated with a great deal of uh, lewdness and licentiousness and uh, 
uh, uh, it was just a kind of a wicked holiday, really. But it was a popular holiday. It turns out that the Roman feast of Saturnalia always followed the winter solstice. And the winter solstice is December 21st. It's that moment in the natural calendar and the movement of the earth and the sun and its relationship in which you have the shortest day of the year, the least amount of daylight. Well, it just so happens that the Babylonian religion celebrated the birth of Tammuz, the son of Semiamorous, by her husband Nimrod, at the same time, also following the winter solstice. Now, maybe you've never heard of Tammuz or Semiamorous. Perhaps you've heard of Nimrod. But the Babylonian religion in the eastern realms of the Roman Empire was a strong religious stream. And it turns out that one of their big days was right at that moment, right at the right in the day, on the day, and then in the days following the winter solstice. And of course, you had the Egyptian religion. Now, you might not know much about the Egyptian religion, and it's probably just as well that you don't. But it turns out the Egyptians celebrated the birth of Horus, the son of Isis, by her husband Osiris at the same time. Now, the Babylonian birth of Tammuz and the birth of Horus, they actually are pretty strong parallels. You say, well, who cares what the Egyptians were doing? Well, it mattered then because Egypt was a major province and an important province of the Roman Empire. In fact, it was the wealthiest province of the Roman Empire at that time. Whoever controlled Egypt controlled a vast amount of wealth. And finally, we had another religion that was sort of newly becoming popular in the Roman Empire, and that of Mithras. Now, Mithras was an imported faith from the Persians. But the god Mithras was said to be born in a cave to a virgin on December 25. So naturally, the politicians of the Roman Empire scratch their head and say, gee, we got a lot of common, a lot of important things happening in December. Well, they didn't use the month of December, but at the winter solstice and immediately following the winter solstice. We've got this Mithras guy, we've got, we've got Horus, we've got, we've got Tammuz, and we've got this, we've got this Jesus. Let's just, let's just see if we can just try to, let's put pressure on all these groups to coordinate them all at that time. And everybody can have a day or two of holiday celebration or maybe a week of holiday celebration. And it'll all bring coordination and peace and tranquility to the Roman Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire was very beleaguered at this time. It was being pressured by foreign invasions. And so the Romans were very desperate to try to build internal cohesion. So it turns out by the time we get to the 400s, the churches, the Christian churches began to acquiesce to this political and social pressure. Now, no church fixed the celebration of Jesus' birth to December 25 until the year 440. As far as we know, that's the first time that we know that the birth of Jesus was celebrated in late December, December 25, by any organized church structure. Prior to that, it had not occurred. But they were beginning to collapse by the time we get to the 5th century. The churches were, were acquiescing to this pressure. This was all a response to the pressure from the beleaguered Roman government. 
All right, so that's, that tells you how we got to December 25. Now, let's turn over the outline. Let's move on to the next point. Now, the next point might be rather important. It turns out that all of the, uh, or at least almost all, of the things that we associate with the celebration of Christmas are pagan in their origin. Pagan in their origin. And this is worth remembering and not letting it slide. In my opinion, this is a pretty important area for us to let settle into our thinking. That much of what, almost everything that is typically associated with Christmas is pagan in its origin. So let's start in Jeremiah chapter 10 verses 1 through 5. This is an important passage. It's worth your consideration. I really think that many of you ought to mark this passage in your Bible and, let, and think on it just a bit. So we're going to talk about the Christmas tree. Now, I personally, when I see a Christmas tree, I say to myself, that's rather pretty. I like trees. I like evergreen trees. I like spruce trees and fir trees and cedar trees. I like them. They're, they're, they're attractive, even if they're not decorated. Now, there's ways that they can be probably over-decorated, and often they are. But nonetheless, when you put lights in a tree, and there's little tinsel and a star on top, and a little this and that, and you say, it's pretty. That's not justification, though. Just because it's pretty doesn't make, make it right or a good idea. So although pretty, what we call the Christmas tree has this long, long tradition in paganism. And you need to understand that. Uh, you know, we may have a misunderstanding about what paganism and heathenism always looks like. Sometimes you, you may have in your mental picture that people who are heathen and pagan in the ancient world or the medieval world or in the modern world are thoroughly ugly and disgusting looking people who do ugly and disgusting things all the time. And that actually isn't the case. Many pagan and heathen traditions have, have, the, have, have things that are appealing to the eye. They are beautiful. They are lovely. They look good. There's something admirable about what they, they do in terms of eye appeal. I mean, we could, I could probably come up with a number of examples, but you might think of, say, some of the Greek architecture, the Greek temples. They're actually very, they're very aesthetically engineered architectural accomplishments. They're beautiful buildings. The buildings are lovely. The, but, the, but the buildings are, are dedicated, most of those buildings were dedicated to heathen gods. The same is true of the ancient religion of the land, in the land of Canaan. And we're going to touch on that here a little bit. But let's go to Jeremiah. And let's read the first few verses of Jeremiah to get our beginning point regarding this tradition of the Christmas tree, which is so deeply embedded in the, in the, fa in the uh, culture of our Christmas season. Jeremiah 10, beginning at verse 1. Hear ye the word which the Lord speaketh unto you, O house of Israel. Thus saith the Lord, Learn not the way of the heathen. Be not dismayed at the signs of heaven, for the heathen are dismayed at them. So now what's going to follow is a description of a heathen custom. Alright, we have a heathen custom coming up. For the customs of the people are vain. For one cutteth a tree out of the forest, the work of the hands of the workmen with the axe. They deck it with silver and with gold. They fasten it with nails and with hammers that it move not. They are upright as the palm tree, but speak not. 
They must needs be born because they cannot go. Be not afraid of them, for they cannot do evil, neither also is it in them to do good. Now, for those who are critics of this particular passage, and they say, well, you know, that kind of sounds a little bit like a Christmas tree. You know, you cut it down and you put decorations on it, silver and gold, and you, and you fasten it with a nail and a hammer at the bottom so it doesn't tip over. Yeah, that does sound a little bit like a Christmas tree, I suppose. But those who are eager to defend the use of a tree in this manner are going to say, well, this passage really isn't about a Christmas tree. It's really about a wooden idol. And then they're going to land on verse 5. They're going to say, really what's happening here is you start with a tree and you, you cut it all up and you turn it, you know, lop off all the limbs and you, you fix it up. And so you end up with a, a wooden idol and you might cover the wooden idol with gold. And it's not talking about a, a tree that's decorated. It's talking about a, a wooden idol. Well, I'm against wooden idols as well. And there are a couple of translations of Scripture that lend themselves to that interpretation more than the King James does. But the reading of Jeremiah chapter 10, verses 1 through 5, does have a description that I think an open-minded person is going to say, boy, that really does sound a lot like a tree that we call a Christmas tree. Now, as a heathen custom, you, you might say, well... We've only got one verse in the Bible that talks about this, that warns us of this. That really isn't the case either. Even without Jeremiah 10, 1 through 5, I think you could build at least a reasonably good case that the Christmas tree has a long pagan tradition and it's one worth us avoiding. So I'd like to look at some, some other passages that describe uh, things of this nature. Now, they're not quite as clear as verses two, three, and four of Jeremiah chapter 10. But there is enough there placed in the context of the times they're going to give us, really, should give you real pause. Now, bear in mind this thought. In the ancient world, in the ancient Canaanite religions, and in the world that the Israelites lived in back in the Old Testament, you maybe have heard of groves, a grove of trees. Now again, this is taking me back to a point I mentioned. Not everything that the heathen religions did was ugly and awful. They, some of them did some very horrible things, such as uh, sacrificing children to Moloch in a very obvious and disgusting way. Well, that's a very ugly thing, and so you naturally react negatively against that. But some of the things that the ancient world did with respect to these Canaanite religions, was that they would go to a very beautiful place. They would find a nice hill or a mountain where there's all these beautiful green, evergreen trees. And that is where they would build their altar, their pagan altar, and they would have certain rituals and rites and things that they would do there. But those locations, they looked like a state park. You've got to get the thought in your head. These were, these were not ugly places. These were beautiful places. These were not ugly trees. These were beautiful trees. There'd be a great place that you might say, let's go take a picnic lunch there <laughs> and sit in the shade under the evergreen tree. Well, <laughs> pagans, they like that too. And so this is what they did. These were the locations they chose. And many of these locations became popular 
and became the sort of places that, 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 that uh, uh, the believers and followers of Jehovah were commanded to avoid. So let's just start in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 12 and verse number 2. There's quite a trail of passages that we could look at here. Deuteronomy 12, 2, regarding these pagan religions, we have this. It says, Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess serve their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. The green tree is the words I'd like to call your attention to. We can find this. Let me read from Isaiah 57, beginning at verse number 3. Isaiah 57, beginning at verse 3. But draw near hither, ye sons of the sorcerers, the seeds of the adulterer and the whore. Against whom do you sport yourselves? Against whom do you make a wide mouth and draw out the tongue? Are not... Are ye not children of transgression, a seed of falsehood, inflaming yourselves with idols under every green tree, and slaying children in the valleys? Let me go to the book of Jeremiah, chapter number 3. And I'll begin at verse 6. Jeremiah 3, verse 6. The Lord said unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel hath done? She is gone up upon every high mountain, and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Verse 13 reads in a similar way. Only acknowledge thine iniquities, that thou hast transgressed against the Lord thy God, and hast scattered the ways to the stranger under every green tree, and have not obeyed my voice saith the Lord. And there are other places. I'll read one more passage from Jeremiah 17, verse 2. I'll start in verse 1. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, and with the point of a diamond. It is graven upon the table of their heart and upon the horns of your altars. Whilst their children remember their altars and their groves by the green trees upon the high hills. All right. I hope I've been able to persuade you that the green tree is something we've got to handle with a lot of care. Now, I'm not suggesting you go out to your, your yard and you take out your chainsaw and buzz down every spruce tree or every fir tree or every cedar tree or every green tree in your yard. That, of course, is missing the point entirely. The point is that there is a strong, strong ancient pagan tradition associated with a green tree that is treated in some sort of special manner as described in Jeremiah. And to the extent that we follow in that tradition, we are openly enjoining in a heathen and pagan custom which has been condemned roundly in the Old Testament. So, yes, it might be pretty, but that doesn't matter. It is something that the ancients have done, and we have no... We have no warrant to try to co-opt it. We are not commanded to co-opt it. It doesn't say, oh, go ahead and take that green tree and let's put a star and let's celebrate the birth of Jesus. We'll co-opt their symbol. 
The Bible tells us not to do that. It tells us to avoid that. We are not told to take their symbol of their pagan tradition and try to convert it into some sort of a Christian symbol, some sort of a Christian custom. We're instructed not to do that, not to be associated. Don't do what they do. All right, so I think enough on that point. There are some other things, though, that we'll mention briefly. Now, gift-giving one to another is directly connected to Saturnalia in the Roman Catholic tradition. It was a strong feature of Saturnalia, and Saturnalia came down in the Roman Catholic tradition, even unto today. Um, of course, we have mistletoe. Mistletoe comes from Saturnalia and Druid traditions. Just as a point of trivia, you might remember that mistletoe is a parasite plant. So that might be worth considering. And of course, Santa Claus. <laughs> Surely we don't have to spend a lot of time on Santa Claus. But Santa Claus is a, basically it's a mishmash of several pagan sources. That's our modern Santa. The modern Santa is some sort of kind of an amalgam of, of, of personalities that have been blobbed together into this jolly fellow that is completely pagan in its origin with, with really no value and virtue. Now one interesting is there's a Dutch tradition called Sinterklaas and his sidekick Zwarte Piet or Zwarte Piet. That means Black Piet. Black Piet. In the custom in Holland it actually is this the sidekick there actually puts blackface on, his, on, him, on himself and is, is the sidekick of this Sinterklaas. And of course you have the Norse tradition, the Norse god Odin of Northern Europe, of the various Teutonic Germanic tribes. The Norse god Odin and his eight-legged horse Sleipnir pulls a sleigh, pulls his sleigh through the sky and then leaves gifts in stockings next to fireplaces. <laughs> All right, so there's a lot that goes into Santa Claus that, that really just needs to be deeply and heavily and completely put aside. All right, so there, there's more of the pagan traditions that are associated with Christmas. But let's go and start being a little bit practical with the time we've got left. Let's move on. So why is any of this really a problem? Why should this be a problem? And I know there's probably a few who are going to say, good grief, you're just being a killjoy. I mean... Christmas is just a time of happiness and everybody's cheerful and, you know, everybody's upbeat and you hear the pretty songs in the stores and, the, you know, the snow and, the, you know, it's just a cheerful season. Can't you just quit being a killjoy? Well, <laughs> it'd be a little easier to stop being a killjoy if this was just a little one day slice like, oh, well, let's just take St. Patrick's Day. And for one quick day, we all decide to pretend we're Irish and put on green. And we put green dye in your swimming pool or whatever it is you want to do. And then it, it's gone. But that's not Christmas. Christmas begins, if not the day after Thanksgiving, it begins perhaps earlier. And it lasts past into January. And, and all of this enormous baggage is there for maybe six, seven, eight weeks. It's a season of the year. It's like spring, summer, fall. It, it really, what you've got is practically like spring, summer, fall, Christmas. 
it just dominates an entire chunk of the year that, that, that has just morphed its way into modern society. So the reason it's a prob- problem, and, I, and, I, and it's not that I, I really don't want to be a killjoy. I'm just saying that this is, this is what makes this particular slippery slope extra slippery. Because it, it, it's so easy to be drawn in. And then it begins to, by creep, it, it takes on more and more and more. And those of you who are my age perhaps can think of families that began to surrender a little bit in this area, and it just, it just really took them out of the fundamentals of the faith. It took them out of, of where they were as a serious-minded Christian, just into the great culture of modern American society with all of its baggage and ill associations. All right, so why is any of this problem? Well, number one, participating in ex- extensive pagan traditions should trouble your conscience. It should trouble your conscience when you begin to surrender ground in these pagan traditions. Now, in terms of history of Christmas in our country, it turns out that the Puritans of early America refused to acknowledge Christmas. They would not celebrate Christmas in any way, shape, or form. In fact, I believe I'm correct in saying when the pilgrims landed... They purposely looked at their, the, the, few, the days as they were unfolding after they landed in November and began to get ready to go to work in December of 1620. They purposely decided to start building their first building, their first structure, the first common house, on Christmas Day. They made it a work day because they intentionally said to themselves, we're not going to celebrate Christmas because of all the pagan associations they knew that were so embedded in the Roman Catholic Church and in other aspects of, of uh, Western European culture. And this continued for you know, 100, 150 years of early America in which people didn't celebrate Christ- Christmas. There's a, a number of stories in which we could go down this road and discuss it. But, for example, well, here's just one more quick example. It's not really in my notes, but I'll just mention it. You might remember the revolutionary battle I believe it was the Battle of, I hope I'm getting this right because I'm I'm leaving my notes, the Battle of uh, Trenton, when Washington crossed the Delaware on Christmas Eve to attack the Hessians who were having a drunken celebration. Well, the Hessians, he knew that the Hessians followed the traditional Roman Catholic ways and they always celebrated Christmas big time. And they were mostly going to be drunk for the evening, and the next day they'd be recovering. But Washington also knew that a large number of his army came from New England and from other parts of the colonies where Christmas was not celebrated. And nobody in his army was necessarily clamoring to have the evening off and the next day because it was a holiday. So he knew that the enemies were celebrating a holiday, And the men in his army weren't. It just wasn't a big deal to Americans at that time. Thus, he said, hey, we may have an opportunity here. All right. So it was never a popular holiday in America for a long time. It wasn't really until the 1800s, the late 1800s, that Christmas became a popular holiday. And there's a couple of things that that, that fed into that in the English-speaking world. Um, uh, Charles Dickens' story, The Christmas Carol, was a very popular story. 
kind of revitalized Christmas. The Victorians did a lot of really great things, but, one, but they kind of revitalized the Christmas celebration. But of course now, that brings us now into the, the, the 20th and 21st century with, with um, Christmas becoming intensely materialistic. Intensely materialistic. Lights, parties, alcohol, expensive gifts, and of course, typically debt. And I think I've already stressed this point, but I need to make it clear. Unlike every other holiday that rapidly comes and goes, this is a season that lasts weeks. And it draws people in like a vast pagan materialistic vacuum cleaner. It sucks you in. But people have various reasons that, 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 that it, it, it appeals to them. But it, it, it has this ability to, to begin with just a little surrendering, a little ground here and there until you have this, uh, you become um, essentially overwhelmed, which takes us to the next point. Any good that's associated with the season, like family time, family time is a good, that's a good thing. That's good. It's always great to have family time together. But any, any, any time you begin to focus with the family time, inevitably you have this, this mission creep in which other features of the season begin to uh, pressure themselves in on your family time, and it gets overwhelmed. And I, I've seen this again and again. So you can't, it's not, it's not really wise to say, well, we're just going to go ahead and celebrate Christmas because there's, there's something good in it. There's some small good in it. We'll just not worry about all this other stuff. Well, that's really not a right approach. It's not a wise approach. In fact, I think it's a rather dangerous approach because all of this is the first, is, it's, it's, this, it's this slope that begins to suck people in and draw them down and undermine their spiritual priorities. Now, last, in the few minutes I've got left here, let me just touch on one or two important points. And of course, don't, we shouldn't forget, Jesus wasn't born on December 25th. If you're celebrating his birth, fine, celebrate his birth. But let's, if we know when his birth is, let's celebrate his birth on his birthday. You know, so if we know that the birth is in autumn and we know it's associated with tabernacles, we understand that. The scholarship and the research is there to support the idea that he's born in the autumn and he's associated, his birth is associated with tabernacles. So then let's celebrate it at that time to the best of our ability. We know that we're not, it's not on December 25th then I believe it's on us to do the best we can. Now, after all, if I celebrated my wife's birthday three months later than what it really was, she would find that a bit strange and probably would, I think, I think she'd be pretty aggravated. She wouldn't like that. Now, as we close though, are there any practical ways are there any practical ways to soften the sense of loss when the decision is made not to celebrate Christmas? Are there any practical ways to soften the sense of loss when the decision is made not to celebrate Christmas? Now, I need to talk to men and ladies perhaps separately here for just a moment. Most men who look at the facts are going to be able to make this trip easier than ladies. I'm not 100% sure why. But that seems to be a strong general pattern. For men, this is an easier trip. So husbands, it, when you think about talking to your wife about this topic or talk to other ladies about this topic, it, just recognize that this is not a necessarily an easy trip for ladies to make. 
just bear that in mind. Now, number one, though. Sometimes it's said that nature abhors a vacuum. It'll, it may be easier to recognize and to really give up Christmas and all the pagan traditions and all the things associated with it by properly celebrating the birth of Christ at tabernacles. So actually do it. Do celebrate it. Now in this congregation, we've made that attempt. We do make that attempt every season at tabernacles. We attempt to revisit the birth of Christ. We commemorate the birth of Christ. We celebrate the birth of Christ. We read the passages of Scripture about the birth of Christ. We sing the songs associated with the birth of Christ. And we elevate that event because we want to honor Christ. We want to honor our Savior. We want to recognize His gift to us. At the same time, we want to fulfill in our own selves the sense that, this, that we are doing this, this, this task, this, this function. It's being fulfilled. We're not throwing out Christmas without filling it in with something else. We're not going to let the void remain. So first, celebrate the birth of Jesus in connection with the Autumn Feast of Tabernacles. And second now, build friendships with others who also avoid this pagan materialistic season. Try hard to find others and build friendships and fellowships with others who avoid this so that you're not standing alone. You don't feel like the whole world is having a shindig and you're the only one. You're just this curmudgeon. My husband is making it. We can't do this and we can't do this and we can't do this. You're all alone. You're the only lady you know. Well, that could be tough. Sure. Sure. <laughs> Build friendships with others who also avoid this pagan materialistic season. And finally, this might be an important point as well. We need to guard our own attitudes. So I think when talking to those who are thinking about leaving Christmas behind, we have a couple of different ways we can approach them. We can be encouraging, we can share a little bit of information. Or we can be harsh and caustic. Now, if you choose to be caustic, harsh, deeply judgmental, you're probably going to be, it's probably going to be a counterproductive experience. We need to be encouraging in this area and avoid harsh, caustic attitudes and words and, and try to do our best to be a pop, to, to present it in a, in, a, in a positive way. All right. Well, thank you for your time, ladies and gentlemen. And this being the happening to be the day before Christmas, December 24, I believe this was a topic that needed to be revisited. Uh, and from time to time, we need to really have this uh, fresh in our mind why we do what we do here locally and, and what I believe Israel ought to be doing as Israelites who uh, are, are familiar and follow our example here in this church, what we ought to be doing uh, in terms of celebrating the birth of Christ at the right season and avoiding all of that which is pagan uh, to the very best of our ability. Thank you for your time.